Before we sing our next song, I'd like to take this opportunity to introduce our preacher this morning. Uh, as many of you know who are members of this church, uh, it is a candidating weekend uh, for Pastor Mark Mincy and his family as he and we are praying about him serving alongside us here uh, at Faith Bible Church. But candidating weekend is such a misleading term. Uh, we think of a presidential candidate. You know, this is not what's happening here. This isn't some vote just because it happens to be November uh, this is really an opportunity for us to learn uh, the heart of a man who wants to serve here and who the elders would like to serve here. And to help the congregation understand uh, the likelihood and the potential of this partnership, we thought it'd be best for the congregation, the church family, to see his heart as well. And so we talked this morning through some questions and answers uh, around convictions and character and competence and chemistry but one of the things that we really want you to see, even more than those four C's, are his cravings, his heart, what propels him more than anything else. And we thought there'd be no better opportunity for this than to allow him to share the word of God, his greatest passion, his passion for our Lord. But there's something you need to keep in mind as this is happening. You're not looking at him this morning to see if he loves Jesus. You're looking through him in your own love for Jesus to the word. Don't focus on the man, despite what candidating Sunday may mean in your mind. Focus on the message and the, the clear text calling us to desire in God. So after this next song, we're going to sing this. Uh, we're going to sing together, and then we're going to worship together as Mark leads us in worship in the sermon from Psalm 42 and 43. Well, thank you for your singing. Thank you for those who've led us in worship. It's a joy to be with you. I can tell tall guys preach here. <laughs> but I'm going to survive. It gives me something to hide behind, right? It's another thing I should have said in the Q&A one, uh, is one of the ways I'll balance uh, Phil and Justin out is uh, I'll lower the average height. <laughs> but it is a joy to be with you. Thank you for how you folks have welcomed us. And some of you may not even know that you've welcomed us here when we have visited here in the past. But you have been a joy to us and an encouragement to us. And it is indeed a privilege to be here today and to preach the word of God. And so I'm thankful for this opportunity. Would you join me in prayer? And let's look to the Lord and ask him for his help as we approach his word. Heavenly Father, I come to you now thanking you for who you are. Lord, thank you for the truths that we have sung. Reminding us of grace. Reminding us of an omniscient, omnipotent, God, reminding us of a God who is far bigger than our biggest trouble and far bigger than our biggest success. So, Lord, remind us wherever we find ourselves in life today that we need you, that we need to be reminded of your grace, your majesty, your glory, your power. And so, Lord, I thank you for the fact that we've already been able to do that in song. 
And so would you continue to guide our worship as we approach your word? Lord, we realize that we cannot learn unless you teach us. We need the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit to open up your word to us. And so I ask for that now. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 42. Psalm 42, we'll be looking at Psalm 42 and 43 today. They are connected in many of the Hebrew manuscripts. These are one psalm. You know, the psalms uh, are this combination of deep theology and music. What we have done today is uh, we haven't necessarily sung psalms, but we have sung deep theology set to music, and there's precedent for that. And it really goes all the way back to the book of the Psalms. These psalms generally flow out of the experiences of life. Have you ever thought at a certain point in your life, you know, I wish I could put in words what I'm going through right now, maybe write a poem? Well, that's what we have in the book of Psalms. There's five books in this one massive book. So there's 150 Psalms. There's five books, and we're going to look at the introduction to the second book of Psalms today, Psalm 42. Now, while these Psalms are generally about personal circumstances, uh, we must remember that they always end generally with doxology. In fact, if you were to look at the five little books of Psalms within the large book of Psalms, you will note that every one of them ends with a rousing doxology. In fact, it is almost as if they build to Psalm 150, which is just this tremendous doxology. Uh, Highlight every time you see praise in Psalm 150, and you'll have a very colorful Bible. The Psalms are all about God and His glory, not us and our troubles or us and our successes. And yet we come to a psalm today that is about a very difficult time in the psalmist's life. You'll note at the very beginning there, and we will read this text in just a moment, but uh, some introductory comments. You'll note, and this is part of the inspired text where it says, To the choir master, a maskal of the sons of Korah. Now, maskal is one of those Hebrew words that is kind of hard to define, but Undoubtedly, it was some type of a musical or liturgical term. But this word in particular seems to also emphasize wisdom and contemplation. One of my other favorite words in the Psalms is the word selah. Have you ever seen that word? You'll see it's kind of scattered throughout. I think it shows up in the book of Habakkuk as well. It's another word that is is notoriously hard to define, and yet scholars generally agree that it is some type of a musical term. For those of you that are musicians, you know what a rest is, right? It's when you don't play or don't sing, and if you do, you know you just made a mistake, right? It's something like that. But if I were to try and define maskal for you, which I think is somewhat important as we approach approach this text, here's how I would define it. It it, it means to pause and contemplate. In other words, you want to truly understand the wisdom of what you are about to sing or hear sung. Now, I am not going to sing to you, just so you know. But that's what would have happened in the worship of 
Old Testament culture. And it's saying, look, you need to seriously consider what you are about to hear. And so I am here saying to you, you need to seriously consider, not my words, but the words of sacred Scripture. And it's interesting because Selah, although it it is not in this text today, it's similar, although Selah, I think, means something like this. Okay, so as you are reading and you see Selah come, it, it means something like a stop. In other words, musically, it's a rest of some sort. Think about what you've just read and worship God because of it. So Maskell kind of gives us this idea of, okay, you need to really tune in to what God is saying here. Selah is more along the lines of, hey, while you're reading, don't just read and and gloss over the text. Stop and think about what you've just read and worship God because of it. We are blessed in the church to have a rich history of hymnody. Uh, we, We sang what you could call perhaps an old hymn of the faith today, right? It is well with my soul which goes very well with this text today. But what good hymns do, what good uh, songs do in the context of church is they connect our minds with theology. We want to understand who God is. You'll notice there that it says the sons of Korah. Now, uh, the, the first seven or eight psalms in book two are all written by the sons of Korah. And again, just by way of introduction, so these guys would have been theologian musicians. Generally, those two things were not disconnected in Old Testament society. These guys were priests. So the sons of Korah likely descended from Haman. And so there were three primary musicians in Old Testament culture that you will note, and and I'm not going to uh, read them to you now, but if you were to study in 1 Chronicles 25, you would see three names. Asaph, you probably recognize that name. He's, he, he wrote many psalms. Jeduthan and Haman. The sons of Korah are likely descendants of Haman. They led worship, but they were also theologians. They were priests, and, and I would say it to you this way. These guys knew their Bibles. Now, their Bibles were a little bit smaller than our Bible today right? They knew the Torah. They knew God's revelation, and it showed up in their worship. And so this is what we have before us today. As we read through Psalm 42 and 43, I would like you to consider this just brief title, if you will, if you're taking notes and you want a title. I would submit to you this, waves of God's grace and beacons of God's truth. So waves of God's grace, I think we see in Psalm 42. And then as we navigate into Psalm 43, I I think we see beacons of God's truth. And yet I think you'll see why these texts are connected. Look for references to water. Look for references to God's light and truth. Watch for repetition and symmetry. And let's read this text together. Psalm 42. To the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. 
Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Waves of God's grace, beacons of God's truth, and then we'll end with responses of God's people. How do we respond to God's word? You know, about two weeks ago, it was actually two weeks tomorrow, we left central Illinois to come down here. And when we left Illinois, it was about 15 degrees. Doesn't that sound great? Not only that, the, the roads were icy. We didn't realize that we should have gotten ahead of this storm. And so, uh, generally, if, if everything goes perfectly, driving from central Illinois to here is 18 hours, 18 hours of driving time. It took us about 30. Because uh, for the first six hours of that trip, we were going about 30 miles an hour average. And if you're anything like me, I'm, I'm beginning to do the numbers in my mind and say, this is not good. We are never going to get there. And there did come a point where we almost said, hey, let's just pull off. We need to get a hotel and, and cry uncle and, you know, pick it back up tomorrow. But we didn't. We kept going on. Now, I tell you that because I want to use my daughter, my one child that's not in here as an example, Jane. Now, one thing that the children's workers probably already know about Jane is Jane does not walk anywhere. Jane runs, skips, jumps, hops, twirls, dances, climbs, stumbles, falls, repeat the process, if you will. She doesn't, she, literally, she just is like that. And can you imagine what it is like for a child like that to be in a car seat for 18 hours? So about four hours into our trip, she lost it. I mean, just a, a good old-fashioned lost it. And Tricia, to her great credit, was back there trying to calm her. In my kind of executive dad mode, I was thinking, this should not be happening. 
How dare she interrupt the quiet of this car? And on and on it goes. But then she said something, and forgive me if I cry, all right? Um, I'll get over it. So that's going through my mind, and she's literally at times screaming at the top of her lungs. But finally, she almost, it's like she came to the end of herself and she said this. And all of a sudden, I was not the uh, executive dad. I was like, just like broken like a shepherd. She said, I just want to go home. Ripped my heart out. Now, Trish has no idea. She, does, she learns a lot when I give sermon illustrations. So she has no idea right now that I was literally up driving. Not only was, were the roads icy and it was dangerous, but now I'm bawling and crying and I can't see. She didn't know that. She just wanted to go home. Her whole world, as a little three-year-old who was incredibly active, her whole world had been turned upside down. She, I mean, I've thought this before. Why, they're strapped in a car seat. Like, I would go crazy too. In, in a sense, folks, that's what this psalm is all about. This guy just wants to go home. You, you see that. It, it radiates off the pages. He, he's somewhere we don't know where. This could be David writing this. It says that this is a psalm of the sons of Kor. It could have been for the sons of Kor. David could have said, hey, I want you to write a song about this. We don't know. Whatever the case, this person wants to go home. They want life to be normal again. The Greek, uh, I'm sorry, the, the, the Hebrew concept of peace, of shalom, is like everything as it should be. Jane's world was not as it should have been in her little mind. And she, and she was pretty right, right? I, I mean, this is where the psalmist finds himself. Perhaps that's where you find yourself. But even if you don't, perhaps you're on a mountaintop here today, and I praise God for that, but, but you know what I hope you glean from this psalm is how you can help people who may not be on the mountaintop. Spurgeon said of Psalm 42, it is the cry of a man far removed from the outward ordinances and worship of God, sighing for the long-loved house of his God. And at the same time, it is the voice of a spiritual believer under depressions, longing for the renewal of the divine presence, struggling with doubts and fears, but yet holding his ground by faith in the living God. Most of the Lord's family have sailed on the sea, which is here so graphically described. I imagine all of us have probably sailed on this sea. So let's get into Psalm 42, and then we will make our way to 43. The deepest questions of life, I think, can generally always be traced to origin and authority. And so as you look at this psalm, you immediately see questions that jump off the page. And if you would, just go through this with me. Look at... uh, 42 and and verse 2, when shall I come and appear before God? God's timetable is not our timetable, is it? He's questioning the timetable of God. And as if that's not bad enough, his enemies then are mocking him and saying, where is your God? Is he even there? You go to 42 and verse 9, and the psalmist is saying, God, why have you forgotten me? That's a strong question. And, they, and again, his enemies in verse 10, where is your God? Is he even there? These questions do continue even into 43 and verse 2. God, why have you rejected me? 
Why do I go about mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. And these are all in addition to the questions that are asked in the refrain. Now, I'm sure you noticed that Psalm 42, verse 5, Psalm 42, verse 11, and Psalm 43, verse 5 are all the exact same text. This is like a three-verse hymn with the refrain each time. Why are you cast down? The questions he's asking himself. Why are you cast down? Why are you in turmoil? These questions we have of for God and these questions we ask of ourselves. Another well-known preacher from years past, his name was Martin Lloyd-Jones. And by the way, I, I quote Spurgeon and I quote Lloyd-Jones, and I quote them because they have great insight on these Psalms. But you should know that both Spurgeon and Lloyd-Jones struggled with almost depression as faithful preachers of the Word of God. And, and Lloyd-Jones was a, a medical guy. Uh, I don't know whether you know that. Lloyd-Jones was in line to become the official doctor of the royal English family when God called him into, into ministry. And he was a faithful preacher of the Word of God. But both of them commentating on this passage, and Lloyd-Jones says this, and perhaps you've heard this, it's fascinating. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Now, you may say, now, now you, you've gone crazy there, Mark. What is the distinction between listening to yourself and talking to yourself? But I think you know, right? Instinctively, you know, he's right. Because what happens is when things go bad, immediately we are tempted to listen to our hearts. And yet God tells us about our hearts that our heart is deceitful. It's desperately wicked. Who can know it? And so if I'm just listening to my heart, uh, I've got issues. I've got problems. And so what Lloyd-Jones is saying there is this. Don't listen to your heart. Speak God's truth to yourself. And that's exactly what you see the psalmist doing here. Three times in the refrain, he asks questions. Why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Here's, here he, he's, that's like listening to yourself. Then he talks to himself. Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. I've tried to summarize 42 as waves of God's grace. Because you see a lot of water in this psalm. And I think this will help us to understand the big picture here of this psalm. So again, uh, verse 1, immediately, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. Now, in, in our English translations, we may not catch the desperation that is here. So what this is, is this is an animal that instinctively knows that it is going to die unless it gets water. Like, this, this isn't just like two little deer frolicking in the meadow and running to mommy and saying, I'm thirsty. This is like an animal that has been either chased by a predator or chased by a hunter. Somehow it has gotten away, but it is away from its natural habitat. It is desperate. It is isolated. And it is incredibly thirsty. And it instinctively knows, I'm going to die unless I get a drink. This is the desperation that is being compared to here in verse 2. My soul thirsts in that same way for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? I think we all know hunger is bad. Thirst is much more intense, right? You'll die without water really, really quick. I'm not a camper. 
Uh, I'm not, I, I love sports, but generally they, they have a ball associated with them. But I, I do go camping, guys. If you're a big camper and you wanted to go, I would go with you, all right? But my first introduction to camping, my, my dad's not a camper, by the way, either. My, my poor brother loved it, and because he had me and my dad, he never got to go. But we had two guys in the church in California who were big outdoorsmen. They took us, this is in California, they took us to Yosemite, beautiful place. No tent, nothing, just camping under the stars. We did everything you're supposed to do. You, you're, you're supposed to, like, put your food 30 feet out on a branch so the bears can't get it. I don't know if, if you know that. I, again, that, that's what they tell me. We did that. We did it all right. And we went and we got in our sleeping bags, and immediately we heard something climbing the tree. And what happened was a grizzly bear stole all our food. And two cubs were left, and one of the guys that we were with was kind of a hothead, and he's down there yelling at the two cubs as if they're bad dogs. And we're like, look, that bear is eyeing you as her next meal after eating our food. So we had no food. I'll never forget, we got back to the car, and I'm, I'm probably 10, so my frame of reference here is probably off, but I was hungry, I can tell you that. And all we had to eat was bread and butter. It never tasted so good. But we weren't thirsty. We had water. You can live without food. You can't live, I mean, for a season of time. You cannot live without water. And this is how desperate the psalmist is. He is spiritually dying, but this is physically affecting him too. Verse 3, again, he's mocked by those who are watching, probably godless people. But note something here, the irony of this, the, it, it, the, it adding insult to injury. He is dying of thirst, and the only thing he has to drink is his own tears. Now, first of all, this is incredible theological poetry to put this in this way. It's impactful. But, but think of this. You're desperate for a drink, and literally the only water you can find is your own tears. This is where this psalmist finds himself. Verse 4, this imagery continues. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. He's pouring himself out to God. And by the way, when you see the word soul, the Hebrew context of that is it's not talking about like body here and soul there. He's talking about his whole being. Like I'm going to die. God, I'm pouring out who I am, my very existence to you. I need you, God. It's deep, intolerable pain. Agonizing grief is how commentators describe what is going on here. He remembers that he used to lead the congregation in worship, in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. He's dry now. For whatever reason, he's far, far away. You go down to verse 7. And by the way, in verse 6, just to make note of this, again, his soul is cast down. He re he's remembering God from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and Mount Mizar. Basically, what he is saying there is, God, I am really, really far away, even geographically, from where I want to be. So he's spiritually destitute, he is, he's physically destitute, he is in desperate need 
of God. And then in verse 7, the, 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 the water imagery continues. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. You see these words, depths or, or deep, uh, waterfalls, breakers, waves. And it's very important to note that he views those things as from God. He, he, he assigns them to God, your waterfalls, your waves. Isn't it interesting to think that what this psalmist is going through is actually an expression of the grace of God. Like, like God's, I would say it to you this way, you know, God may, may wreck you, but he will only do it in order to save you. This is, seems to be what's, what's going on here. God is so committed to His own glory and to your good that He may absolutely wreck you in order to save you. In order to bring you back, perhaps, into a covenant relationship with Him. It's ironic, you know, we're here in Florida. I, I don't know if any of you have ever experienced getting caught in a riptide. I have friends, I've heard firsthand accounts of people who got caught in a riptide, and they describe it this way. I've never experienced it, thankfully. But they describe it this way, that, that you, you're, you're tumbling underwater, and you're just, you get to a point where you realize, I'm going to die. And so they'd say, all I could do is I just gasped for air, and I hoped I got air and not water. That's how desperate they were for air. And obviously, my friends who are telling me this story, they found that somehow... They got air. I think this is kind of like the picture here. That sometimes the waves of, of life, and indeed I think you can tie them to God's grace. He's pursuing you. He's not going to let you go. And sometimes you may feel like, I am going to die. And you gasp for air and you get God. And it's God's grace that leads you there. And so... We, we look at this imagery here and we see some difficult things, but I would indeed describe this as waves of God's grace. And be thankful for that, folks. Be thankful that God pursues you. Let's look at Psalm 43 now and the beacons of God's truth. Verses 1 and 2. I've already read them, but let me comment here briefly as we get to the beacons of God's truth. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause. Now, at first glance, you may think, okay, he is asking God to vindicate him in front of other people and defend my cause, but upon further investigation, what he is saying here, we could summarize it this way, be my judge, but also be my advocate. In other words, when he says vindicate me, it could also be translated as judge me. And so it's interesting to note that I think there's a little transition that takes place here in that in, in 42, you see a lot about other people. Where is your God? Mocking him, these types of things, things that are outside of his control. And in Psalm 43, all of a sudden, it's as if there's a shift and it says, look, there's, everybody has issues, everybody has problems outside, everybody has people that attack their faith and this type of thing, but what about you? What about your relationship with God? Are we able to stand before God and say, God, judge me, but also defend me. Now, the beauty of the gospel is that God does both of those things. And in Christ, 
Both of those things collide. And when we repent and believe the gospel, we can rest in the finished work of Christ. So vindicate me, judge me, O God, defend my cause, be my advocate against an ungodly people. There's echoes here in verse 2, why have you rejected me? My mind goes to, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus on the cross. But, but you know, uh, I mean, this, we, we get into big, big theological territory, but uh, let me read or, or just refer to, for sake of time, a couple passages. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. You know what God says about Jesus on the cross? It was the will of God to crush him. Isaiah 53, really the entire chapter, it was the will of God to crush Messiah. And so when we are tempted to doubt the goodness of God, we need to remember that it was God's will to crush His own Son that He might save us. And God cares about you. He cares about His own glory. He cares about His, His, His covenant so much that He will crush you in order to bring you back to Him. And so we get to verse 3 of chapter 43, and, and here's, here's the beacons of God's truth. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill. So I heard an old country preacher once, and I'm sure he was saying it with much love, but he was talking about this type of thing, you know, all the problems in the world, and, and he said this, the problem is with you, <laughs> And in a sense, that's true, right? It doesn't mean that uh, the problems that surround us and people attacking us aren't real. But at the end of the day, in the eternal sense, we need to make sure that we have taken care of our relationship with God. And sometimes God uses all of the circumstances around us to make sure and bring us to a point where we are right with Him. And again, it's His grace, it's His mercy that He saves us from ourselves. And so this is where He goes now. He wants God's light and God's truth to lead him. God's light meaning his salvation. God's truth meaning his covenant, his faithful care for his people. Folks, if you are a believer in Jesus, if you have repented of your sins, if he is your shepherd, guess what? He will not forsake you. Even in the midst of what you may think, God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? Why have you rejected me? And you know what his answer is? I haven't. The point here is this, let them bring me to your holy hill. There are some phrases here that we need to understand. So to your holy hill, to your dwelling. In other words, to God's glorious dwelling place. So, so when these times come in life, do you know what your greatest need is? My greatest need is we need to get to the place where God is. Now foundationally, because of the work of Christ and because we look back on the work of Christ and because he has opened up the way into the most holy place, you know where we can do that? It's very simple. Pray. What access we have to God. But you also do that by gathering together. Now, there's nothing sacred about this building, but there is something sacred about this people. The people who know God. 
and gather together here every week to worship together, to edify one another, to submit to godly leadership, and to love one another. And so when these times of life come, for whatever reason, isn't it strange, we're tempted to run from the very places that God has ordained that would help us. God, you've rejected me, so I'm not going to pray. God, you've rejected me, so I'm not going to go to church anymore. Those are the very places we should run to. So let them bring me to your holy hill. Folks, God's light and God's truth will always bring you to the place where he is. It will always lead you to his presence, not away from it. And he goes further in verse 4, Then I will go to the altar of God. You know what the altar was? That's the place where God forgives. But not only that, as you explore that a little further, you, you find that that was a place where God forgives, but it's also a place where people would stand beside it and praise God for being forgiven. Praise God for His mercy. Praise God for His, His grace. This is where He wants to go. This is where He wants God's light and truth to lead Him to the presence of God, to the forgiveness of God, and then the second phrase of verse 4, to God my exceeding joy. Now, uh, the interesting thing about the Psalms, almost every time, is that circumstances, you, you don't see circumstances changing, but you see perspectives changing. You know what happens when you get into the presence of God through prayer or through gathering with His people? Is the problems of life don't just magically go away, right? Uh, that, that's kind of like the health and wealth gospel. Just do this and God will do this. Unfortunately, that's not true. The circumstances may not change, but your perspective will change. And all of a sudden, the psalmist is full of exceeding joy. He realizes that that joy is found in God alone. And if the circumstances of life lead me to the place where God is, and, the, and, and I realize that God is my exceeding joy, then it's worth it all. And then he says, and I will praise you with the lyre. Oh, God, my God. This, this is like a tangible expression, tangible evidence of a changed heart. The lyre was like a little harp-like instrument. He's not only going to go to the place where God is, he's going to be involved actively praising God. The beacons of God's truth will always lead you into his presence, not away from it. Finally today, let's look at the responses of God's people. These two psalms taken together are very symmetrical. Right? Hebrew poetry is not about rhyme, it's about symmetry. And it's very interesting to note that you have very clearly three stanzas with a refrain each time. And the refrain, as you already know, is, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Three times verbatim in the ESV text. Kids, if you get money for memorizing verses, you just memorize three, right? Three for the price of one. The symmetry here, though, is interrupted in 42 and verse 8, and this teaches us about how we should respond to God. Verse 2 is interrupted right in the middle by this phrase, Psalm 42 and verse 8, by day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. 
Now, there's many interesting things about this, but the first that I would point out to you is that as you enter into book two of the Psalms, book one is almost predominantly using the covenant name of God, Yahweh. Book two uses Elohim and Yahweh interchangeably, but in these two Psalms, he uses exclusively Elohim except for in this verse where he says, by day, the Lord, in all caps, this is Yahweh, the covenant God, the relational God. Uh, uh, It's always used of God in relation to his people. And so, it's instructive to us because it seems as though throughout the rest of this psalm, perhaps he is viewing God as distant. Yes, he's powerful. He's the God of creation. This is the word that's used in Genesis chapter 1. He's powerful. He's there, but uh, my relationship is gone with him. And then all of a sudden, almost out of nowhere, he remembers, no, I have a covenant relationship with God. By day, Yahweh commands his steadfast love, his mercy. He's not going to leave me. He will not give me up. He is a covenant God. He keeps his word even when I don't keep mine. And at night, his song is with me. Isn't it interesting to compare verse 8 to verse 3 of chapter 42? My tears have been my food day and night. He's saying literally all day and all night, where are you, God? And yet in verse 8, he remembers, no, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me. And so the first response of God's people to these waves of God's grace and these beacons of God's truth is to remember that if you are in covenant relationship with God, if you have repented of your sins and believed in Jesus, he has not forsaken you. He will not forsake you. The refrain is instructive as well. And as we kind of conclude today, I want to highlight this refrain because it does show the question and yet the answer from the same source. Because this individual is in covenant relationship with God. I read an article this week that had a lot of, it's a business article, had some fascinating things in it. Written by Jeff Bezos, not a source of theology, I don't believe, but an incredible business guy. One of the things he said was this, that people generally, in the, particularly in the business world, but I think in, in, in public speaking in general, people aren't so much interested in bullet points. They're interested in a story. And so as we conclude today, I want to ask you this, what if... What if God is using whatever is going on in your life right now? Maybe you are in one of those times where you can just perfectly identify with the psalmist here that the waves of God's grace, you're like, really, are they grace? It's crushing me. What if God is using all of this in your life so that your story can lead someone else to a relationship with God? Very simply, the answer here is found in this refrain three times. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. So the response of God's people, number one, you've got to remember that the, the, the God who initiates covenant relationships never breaks them. He will not leave you. 
Number two, you've got to remember, okay, if that is true, then I must hope in God. Have you ever felt like the guy in the New Testament who said this, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief? James says this, you know, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously, doesn't hold back, but let him ask in faith, nothing doubting. Now, here's how I understand that passage is this, because I've had plenty of doubts in my time, right? But you cannot, you must not doubt the character of God. Don't doubt God. If God has initiated a covenant relationship with you, He is going to finish that work. Don't doubt that. So when you come to God, I don't care how weak your faith is, do not doubt the character of God. Hope in God. Now there's another theologian musician in the Old Testament Scriptures. Again in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. You don't have to turn there. Uh, but if you were to read 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verses 14 through 17, this is that famous passage where the people of Judah are surrounded. Their only escape is to the sea. So they literally suicide, and, and God miraculously saves them. But there's this guy named Jehaziel, right? Not a real common name. I told Trish if we had six kids, maybe Jehaziel would be an option for the sixth one since we're all J's and we're running out of J's. But Jehaziel is this theologian, musician. He was from the line of Asaph. You'll see in his genealogy. He was a leader of worship, but he he knew God. And all of a sudden, Jehaziel stands up in the crowd. It's like he's not on the platform, as it were. And and he says, he, he just highlights to the people, look, God is going to give you the victory. If you're to read 2 Chronicles 20, 14 through 17, you read exactly what Jehaziel says. And it is right on the heels of that, that Jehoshaphat, hearing Jehoshaphat's the king, Jehaziel is basically like a a, a nobody theologian musician who probably at best led worship in the temple for a couple weeks a year as part of a team. He didn't have a big voice, but for whatever, it, it says this, it's very interesting, the Spirit of God came upon him. That's very unique in the Old Testament Scriptures. So the Spirit of God comes upon Jehaziel, and he speaks this truth. And then, my whole reason for telling you that is because Jehoshaphat then says what I think is instructive to us on how we can hope in God. He says this to the people. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Now, in the Hebrew, the word established and the word believe have the same root. So it's as if Jehoshaphat is telling his people on the heels of hearing this encouraging word from Jehaziel, look, believe in the Lord your God and you will believe even more. You will be established. So if you're here today and you're saying, look, I, I have, like, like my, my faith tank is empty. I'm going to tell you, believe. Hope in God. And you will believe even more. Because God will not let you go. Either this is going to drive you back into covenant relationship with Him, or it's going to drive you into covenant relationship with Him. He's going to save you as a result. Don't give up. Believe. It's not about how much faith you have. It's about how big God is. Hope in God. For you will praise Him again. He is your salvation and your God. Hope in God. You'll note throughout this psalm, there are times where he, he does get to a point where he says, my God, 
The biggest evidence of that is when he, in verse 8, says the Lord, covenant relationship. But as I close, let me just note one more thing from this text. The, the, the refrain each time in the ESV, it says, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. In that text, in the Hebrew text, there is some room for a translation, something like this, that he is, not, he is my salvation and the help of my countenance. Have you ever heard the phrase, the, the, the eyes are the window to the soul? So like you can walk up to somebody that you know fairly well and you can immediately tell, oh man, something's wrong. Their countenance has fallen. And so folks, I'm here to tell you that there are many times in life where our faces need help from God's face. And this harkens back to what we know as the, the high priestly blessing found in Numbers chapter 6 and verse 24 where it says this, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Folks, that's the God we hope in. That's the God we hope in. And may, may God continue to build our faith in him. Now, just before I turn it back over to Pastor Justin, I would like to invite you to join me in applying this text in perhaps a unique way, and that is by singing. The, the, the old hymn, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood, if you want to follow along in the hymnal, it's number 265. The words will be on the screen. We're just going to sing two verses of this. Again, as a means of applying this truth. The first verse talks about the salvation that is found in Christ alone. The second verse talks about the fact that we, as broken human beings, in, in our own ways, will someday perfectly praise God. It's written by the hymn writer William Cooper, looks like Cowper, but pronounced Cooper, who was a brilliant man, but a man who could very much identify with Psalm 42, 43. A life stricken with depression, and yet he wrote this. In fact, many say that the, the last verse comes from the fact that uh, Cooper was afflicted with some type of a speech impediment. And he was a brilliant attorney. But if you're an attorney and you have a speech impediment, you realize that you've kind of met a dead end in your career. And so it brings more meaning to that. When this poor lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, I'll sing thy power to save. Folks, someday we hope in God now and we enjoy his presence forever.